0: everyone. Welcome. I'm Lucy Plavnik. I'm the chair or the, I guess, the team leader of the Faith Formation Team. And I want to welcome you to this session of Winter Forum at First Baptist. Uh, You know, this is a program that we do um, once a year. We bring in a speaker and um, we are delighted to have Dr. Brad Braxton with us today. And I'm going to, um, some of you were, were around uh, yesterday to do the tour of the um, African-American uh, Museum of um, History and Culture with Dr. Brad um, Dr. Brad Braxton. And it was so fantastic. So uh, if you've already heard this, you know, then, you know, I'm just gonna say it again, but if you haven't heard it, this will be your first time. So um, I have his, there's also printed if you wanna read his bio. Um, so, um, Dr. Braxton holds a PhD in New Testament studies from Emory University, a master's degree in theology from the University of Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar, a BA degree in religious studies from the University of Virginia. He's the author of three scholarly books and numerous essays exploring the intersection of religion and social justice. Dr. Braxton is a seasoned educator who has held lectureships at Georgetown University, Harvard Divinity School, and McCormick Theological Seminary, and professorships at Southern Methodist University, Vanderbilt University, and Wake Forest University. Dr. Braxton is an ordained Baptist minister. In 2007, he preached at London's Westminster Abbey. One of only a select group of American ministers to preach in that historic pulpit, his Westminster Abbey sermon on social justice and nonviolence was part of the bicentennial commemoration of the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire. In 2011, he founded the Open Church of Maryland, a culturally inclusive congregation in Baltimore committed to courageous social justice activism and compassionate interfaith collaboration. So we are so pleased to have you with us this morning and I I just am delighted that you're here. Thank you for coming. And at this point, I'll invite you to come up here and, and, and everyone let's, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention. We have a handout that we'll distribute. If you didn't get it, raise your hand for Zena. And everyone, please let's welcome Dr. Braxton with a wonderful round of applause. Thank you.
1: Good morning. Delighted to be with you and so pleased to now have this partnership with Pastor Pennington Russell, a sister beloved. I knew her by reputation through my connection, through a number of Baptist colleagues at Wake Forest, in particular, my first dean and dear friend, Dr. Bill Leonard. And so I am delighted to have this opportunity to be with you. I bring you greetings on behalf of my colleagues at the Center for the Study of African-American Religious Life at the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture and also the members of the Open Church of Maryland, the people I am privileged to pastor. As was indicated yesterday to those of you who attended the museum tour and seminar, there is a West African proverb that says, where there is no music, the spirit will not come. I repeat, where there is no music, The Spirit will not come. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the time that is ours together this morning, I want to lecture and engage us in conversation from this title, Lifting the Veil, The Apostle Paul and Contemporary Racial Reconciliation. There is an outline that has been prepared. You will also see on the back, there are two biblical texts with which we will wrestle This morning, by God's grace, let us be on our way. Permit me to read the first quotation on your outline as a prelude to my presentation. And those of you who were with us yesterday will know that I have purposely linked this quotation because it began our conversation in the seminar yesterday. One measure of how much slavery pervaded the world of the 18th century is the traffic on the Atlantic Ocean. We usually think of the Atlantic of this period as being filled with shiploads of hopeful white immigrants, but they were only a minority of those carried to the new world. So rapidly were slaves worked to death, above all on the brutal sugar plantations of the Caribbean, that between 1660 and 1807, ships brought well over three times as many Africans across the ocean to British colonies as they did Europeans. The Atlantic was a conveyor belt to early death in the fields of an immense swath of plantations that stretched from Baltimore to Rio de Janeiro, a quotation from Adam Hochschild's marvelous book, Bury the Chains. Reconciliation connotes the bridging of chasms created by the hostile actions of one party against another. Reconciliation should be a primary concern for us as we navigate issues of racial justice in 2019 and beyond. Reconciliation activities before, during, and now after chattel slavery, released palpable positive energy into the moral universe. However, for more than three centuries, Many well-intentioned people have ignored, resisted, or failed to operate fully under that moral energy. Therefore, hundreds of years later, genuine reconciliation between groups estranged by chattel slavery is still largely an unrealized hope. In order to make reconciliation a reality, we must address honestly the many dimensions of hostility associated with slavery. As a proponent of traditional African cosmology, I believe that the violence of chattel slavery created hostility not only in the visible realm of history, but also in the invisible realm of the spirit. Speaking of history, speaking of nature, talking about spirit, my question is in our quest for reconciliation, are we prepared to encounter stories from African rivers and the Atlantic Ocean whose waters and waves played mournful funeral dirges as enslaved Africans drowned themselves, choosing self-annihilation as a form of emancipation. Can we handle the gruesome narratives from the saturated soil of Jamaican plantations, soil which swallowed so much innocent black blood. Can we be patient enough to lend an ear to trees on the back roads in the Southlands of the United States? For centuries, those Southern trees have been aching to acknowledge how colonialism and white skin privilege employed their unwilling branches in lynchings, violently compelling those branches to bear the strange fruit of black bodies. In this contemporary moment, which is understandably concerned about global terrorism, are we prepared to listen as history and nature chronicle for us earlier stories about white terrorism before there was a new scotland yard fbi or department of homeland security interestingly If the British and US empires had begun a war on terror just two centuries ago, they would have been fighting themselves for they were the terrorists. Because the hostility created by slavery was multidimensional, attempts for reconciliation also must be multi-dimensional. Reconciliation is the last stop. I repeat, the last stop on a long, arduous moral trek. As I have engaged in cross-cultural work, as we are engaged in this morning, literally all across the world, I have sensed a proclivity among some white people to rush prematurely to the language of reconciliation. Many white people, well-intentioned, justice-oriented white people Wonder why black people can't just get over the slavery thing. I might respond to such cultural impatience in the following way The actions and attitudes that supported slavery were for centuries conscientiously instilled and rigorously executed by many business, political, and religious institutions. Thus one might assume that steps toward reconciliation might take as long, if not longer, than the centuries of hate took. My pastoral and perhaps prophetic word white sisters and brothers is, if they want reconciliation, they should not be impatient. Permit me now to examine a key term for racial justice. And that word is reparations by which I mean payment for the repair of an injury or wrong done. Let me be crystal clear, perhaps this is the thesis of my lecture this morning. There will be no reconciliation without reparations. The term reparations creates significant discomfort in some white people in general and in some white religious people in particular. I have been received warmly by many white religious and academic communities, literally not just around the country, but around the world. But I have quickly felt a chill in the air when I even mentioned in passing the subject of reparations for slavery. Slavery inflicted cultural, economic, and psychic wounds upon the African continent and diaspora, and African people have been hemorrhaging ever since. In spite of this massive bleeding, African people the world over, to their credit, have transformed every aspect of culture from commerce to cuisine as a Ghanaian Anglican once said to me, the whole world has been made rich by Africa. Thus to ignore conversations about reparations would be akin to enjoying the riches from African people while simultaneously allowing those people to bleed profusely from the wounds of slavery. To continue the metaphor, reconciliation is often depicted as an embrace or a hug that overcomes hostility. But hugging a person who is bleeding profusely without attending to the gaping wound is more a kiss of death than a healing hug. Just as reconciliation is a complex process that must involve reparations, so too reparations is a complex term with many nuances. Opinions about the meanings and administrations of reparation are wide ranging. Yet there is a growing consensus among scholars and activists that reparations should involve financial compensation for institutions and programs that promote the flourishing of continental and diasporic Africans. I agree. Since chattel slavery reaped untold economic profits for many Europeans and Americans, it seems only just that the currency of reparations should at least partly be economic. However, chattel slavery exacted from African people, not only an economic toll, but also a psychic toll. In that regard, British pounds and US dollars alone will be insufficient to redress this wrong. So today in this lecture, I leave open the question about the form of reparations, yet I maintain that without reparations, there will be no genuine abiding reconciliation. Now let me advance my argument. There will be no full-scale dialogue and call to action concerning reparations without the leadership and meaningful involvement of religious communities. For the purposes of this lecture, I mean primarily Christian congregations and theological institutions and seminaries, divinity schools. This is fitting since religion and more specifically, colonial Christianity were primary ideological pillars of chattel slavery. As I alluded to yesterday, the collusion of colonial Christianity and slavery became viscerally real to me as I visited the Ghanaian slave dungeons in Cape Coast and Elmina. In Cape Coast, the male slave dungeon was literally beneath the chapel in which Europeans were holding so-called Christian worship services. In Elmina, the slave auction block was literally beneath the chapel for worship. Colonial Christianity, along with its hegemonic biblical interpretation, was propped up literally by the bones and backs of enslaved Africans. So we have to be very clear today to know that reconciliation will never come unless we really deal with this atrocity that religious communities committed. I also think it's important that we take seriously the words of the ethicist Barbara Holmes when she said we must move beyond polite and reserved academic discourses. According to her, polite and reserved academic discourses are inappropriate responses to genocide. Since Christian congregations and Christian academic theological institutions were major contributors to slavery and colonialism. These same communities should lead the way in helping the world pursue reparations and the reconciliation it will bring. Now, allow me to get to the heart of the matter. I raise a question. Why do certain people, religious, well-meaning, justice-seeking people, frequently renounce the mention of reparations? Pondering this question, it occurred to me that there are philosophical or ideological obstacles that prevent meaningful intercultural conversation about racial justice. And this really happened for me when I was a young emerging assistant professor at Wake Forest University School of Divinity, moving among very hospitable, moderate, and progressive, primarily Baptist congregations moving all across the country as a professor of preaching and talking about biblical interpretation and training preachers. But when I would do this racial justice work in these progressive white Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches and Methodist churches, it got so chilly when I mentioned Revelations. reparations. And that for me was quite a philosophical challenge. So I kept asking, why does this happen? Why do my spiritual kinspeople shut down on me the minute that I start probing serious justice repair? It then occurred to me that I had some of the tools in my toolkit as a scholar of scripture. Supporters of slavery appealed generously to text written by the Apostle Paul, and especially what we call those deuteropauline letters. Those are the letters that perhaps were not written by Paul, but those who later came after Paul writing in Paul's name. Nonetheless, the Pauline corpus in the New Testament was used to sanction the genocide of millions of Africans. So it occurred to me, if text from the Apostle Paul dragged us in to transatlantic slavery, perhaps creative readings of other texts from the Apostle Paul might move us toward racial reconciliation. In many Christian conversations about reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5 verses 17 through 21 is the touchstone text. I have been in settings like this all across the country and the world and Christians love to go to 2 Corinthians 5, especially verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to God's self. Christian proponents of reconciliation are right to centralize 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Yet my argument today is that conversations about 2 Corinthians 5 are premature without sustained attention to 2 Corinthians 3, especially verses 12 through 18. So we do, even in our biblical interpretation, what we do in our cultural conversations, we skip a step. We want to run to reconciliation without dealing with the hard, gritty work in the middle. Can I? I'll let you. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul plums the depths of the challenges facing his congregation and the world. The deeper issue in 2 Corinthians 3 is a long word, but it has a very simple meaning. The deeper issue is epistemology. Epistemology simply means how we know and think. To investigate epistemology is to ask this question, what characteristics allow us to know truth from falsehood? And I would argue in this day and age where there's all kinds of assaults on truth and truth is being bent so very much A religious community like First Baptist has a moral obligation to ask questions about epistemology. How do we know? How do we think? How do we determine truth from falsehood? We will never arrive at reconciliation or its transformation without a transformation in our way of thinking and knowing that is why the so-called diversity, inclusion and equity initiatives in religious communities and in higher education are failing because we approach racial justice as if it is a programmatic matter. If we can have just one more program, make one more hire, add one more person to the team, but if we do not fundamentally shift the way we are thinking, This is why as a both proud, enraged and embarrassed resident originally of the Commonwealth of Virginia, I was born in Salem, Virginia. And in 2019, we have things coming out of the state house. In 2019, See, this is not just a programmatic issue. It's a fundamental issue about how we think. And that's what Paul is getting at in Second Corinthians. Don't rush. Don't talk to me about you want to be reconciled with me until I know there's been a transformation in your way of thinking. In 2 Corinthians, chapter three. Verses 12 through 18, Paul identifies this philosophical or epistemological obstacle. There's something that has to be removed and Paul names it for us. He did this 2000 years ago and we still haven't read the news yet. Paul simply calls it. The veil The veil distorts how we know. The veil obscures right perceptions of the world. Now there are a lot of intricacies in this text, which time will not allow us to go into at least in the lecture part. But let me give you an overview so that you'll understand those texts that I've placed on the back. What Paul is saying is this, God has ushered in a new moment in salvation history. The new era whose architect is Jesus Christ is both similar and dissimilar to the old era whose architect was Moses. Both the old and the new eras reflect God's glory, yet there is a crucial distinction between the old era and the new era. The old era, says Paul, actually places a veil over people's thinking. And a relationship with Jesus removes the obscuring veil so that people can see the world differently. So what does this veil in 2 Corinthians 3 have to do with contemporary people in 2019 still trying to figure out how to get along in the aftermath of the genocide of slavery. An answer emerges if we read 2 Corinthians 3 from the contextual framework of one of my visits to the African continent. Several years ago, I led a seminar for scholars and clergy at St. Nicholas Seminary in Cape Coast, Ghana. On the Thursday night before the Friday seminar, I read again 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18, the principal text for the seminar. But I also read the text upon which 2 Corinthians is predicated. So 2 Corinthians is Paul doing some work on Exodus 34. So if you go back to Exodus 34, and that is why I have placed both of these texts on your outline. In Exodus 34, God renews the covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai. At the end of the covenant renewal, there is a mysterious reference to a veil that Moses places on his face in Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35. Moses had an encounter with God and it left Moses' face shining so that Moses, when speaking with the people, put the veil on and then he took the veil off when he spoke to God. In the Hebrew Bible context, it appears that the veil is a positive instrument. Yet when Paul reads this text in his context, the veil is no longer positive. It is an instrument of concealment. It has negative significance. On a warm Ghanaian Thursday night, prior to a seminar with African colleagues in Ghana, I too began to realize that the veil was problematic and it was hiding something. I promise you, it is amazing when you read scripture in different cultural context. It's one thing to read the book in the stately walls of a finely appointed sanctuary. The book can take on brand new meaning when you read it in gritty post-colonial context in the two-thirds world. It appeared to me as I was preparing for that seminar that this veil was hiding the horrific colonial violence that Exodus places in the mouth of God. The God in Exodus is not a God who is friendly to people on the underside of privilege. In Exodus 34, the covenant is renewed, spiritual people come together and they are fortified, but at the expense of indigenous people. When I read Exodus 34 in Ghana, this text was no longer an innocent affirmation of covenant renewal. In Ghana, a country less than 60 years removed from the bondage of British colonialism, Exodus chapter 34, what's on your outline, verses 11 through 16, arrested my attention. So I did what indigenous people have had to do to survive colonial people reading the Bible. I played jazz with the scriptures. And I inserted different ethnic or tribal names into Exodus chapter 34, verses 11 through 16 this improvisation revealed how dangerous the text could be. That is why Phyllis Tribble years ago rightly said that depending on who you are and the locations in which you read, this is a text of terror. Listen to my improvisation of Exodus 34. Observe what I, the god of colonial violence and greed, command you, my colonial British missionaries to the Gold Coast of Africa. As you invade the Gold Coast to enslave the people and pillage their resources, I will drive out before you the Akan and the Fonti and the Ga and the Awe and the Mosi and the Yaruba. Tear down their altars of African traditional religion where they have met the great God for centuries. Cut down their sacred poles where they have named and dedicated their children to the great God and raised their families in righteousness. And in the name of colonial religion, refer to their sacred traditions as fetishes and call those dark people pagan. For although those indigenous Africans were the architects of religion and knew the true and living God millennial before the Christian religion was even formulated, convince them that their sacred traditions are demonic rituals. My improvisational reading revealed that Exodus 34 for indigenous Africans could be a text of terror, which employs theological justification in order to serve the vested and violent interest of a particular group. My point was not to impugn Moses, or by extension to foster contemporary anti-Judaism. My aim was to unmask the colonial violence at the center of Exodus 34. We often come to the text as if the text, the biblical text is innocent. The pages of the Bible themselves are saturated with the blood of genocide. Interestingly, Paul in the first century and my African colleagues in that seminar in Ghana in the 21st century, had a gut reaction and the gut reaction was that the veil poses a serious problem. Let me be clear, the veil is not a cloth fabric for the face. It is a philosophy that cloaks the mind. And until we lift the veil in our contemporary cultural conversations, We cannot have reparations conversations. Remember, I got interested in lifting the veil just so among white sisters and brothers, I could even mention reparations, let alone talk about what reparations may actually mean. And then when reparations is enacted, we might then be on our way. We might be on our way to reconciliation. So I know that you all are too well-tutored to be like some congregations where I go and they expect by the end of Black History Month that reconciliation will occur. <laughs> there are many aspects to this veil, and I just want to now, in the interest of time, I want to lift one particular aspect, and there are two on the outline, but one because I want to give some times for question. One particular aspect of the veil that I want to lift is the notion of colonialism. And by colonialism, what I mean is the way in which particular cultural groups have taken their flag, their culture, their way of life and violently imposed it upon other parts of the world, and then when that rule is over, continue to export their way of thinking as the only way of thinking in the world. So even though many African states no longer are colonial states, As an educator, I am very aware that neo-colonialism is alive and well, especially in places like higher education. That's why in many seminaries you're not educated unless you do three or four courses on European Christianity. But if you do stuff on Latino folks or black folks, that's always an option. Neo-colonialism. So the veil has many different elements to it. And perhaps we can talk about what you think the veil is. I've offered just two on the outline. Fundamentalism, something we can talk about, but certainly this colonialism and the way in which folks who went all around the world doing just that, importing or exporting their culture and doing it violently, continue to reassert their cultural dominance in ways that often are not at all benign. Now, given my apprehension about things like fundamentalism, these flat, narrow readings of the Bible or colonialism. My emphasis on Second Corinthians might seem strange, a little twist here. This passage appears to support a kind of fundamentalism, colonialism, where Paul flattens the mysteries of his ancient religion, Judaism. Listen to what Paul does. Paul says, in some sense, the veil is only lifted through Christ. And that made me a little comfortable until I did a little more digging in the text. So if you look at two Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, that second paragraph there. Verse 16 makes Jesus Christ central to the removing of the veil. But if the veil is raised only through Jesus, then this passage becomes an instrument of fundamentalism where only Christians have proper perception. So in other words, at the moment that we think Paul is giving us a way forward, he seems to say, but you can only go forward if you belong to one group. To avoid the danger of fundamentalism and colonialism, did Paul appeal to the language of spirit in verse 17? Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Just when we think This text has clearly marked the boundaries of religious insiders and religious outsiders. The text moves into the boundary-breaking territory of the spirit. And did not Jesus himself say, the spirit blows where it wills? By invoking God's spirit in verse 17, this text reveals to us That the spirit's ultimate concern is not partisanship on the basis of religious group identity. I have very little belief, no belief, if I'm honest, (laughs) that on that great getting up morning and on that great judgment day, there will be angels checking for our identity cards, were we in this religious group or that denomination, the spirit is not concerned about partisanship. The spirit's ultimate concern is the last word in both the Greek and English of second Corinthians 317. That last word, the spirit's ultimate concern Is a lutheria in Greek, freedom in English. Where the spirit is, there is freedom. And where freedom is, there is the spirit. That's how you know that the spirit might be hovering around the precincts, is when there is openness to freedom, freedom that transgresses our preconceived notion of who God is and how she shows up. Now, let me be clear. As a Christian, I believe that in Jesus Christ, I typically have all the sacred truth I can stand but I do not have all the sacred truth there is. Others have sacred truth. For example, those who practice African traditional religion, or as I often share with people, one of the great beauties of being the pastor of The Open Church is that one of my most significant teachers, one of our leading board members and activists at The Open Church, who happened to be my first research assistant at Wake Forest School of Divinity and now a powerful LGBTQ activist, is a white sister who is an atheist. So one of the key board members of the Christian congregation that I lead and a regular preacher in our congregation is a woman who doesn't even believe in God. (laughs) But she does believe in spirit because wherever there is freedom, there is spirit. So if we are interested in racial reconciliation, first we must do our best to lift the veil. And the veil is lifted to the degree to which we are open to new partnerships with boundary breaking manifestations of the spirit. You often know that the spirit is around when the spirit starts crossing boundaries that make folk disgruntled and challenge their sense of tradition. My simple plea to you today is that it is time to lift the veil. When the veil is lifted Neo-colonialism can be denounced. When the veil is lifted, racial and ethnic groups scarred by past hostilities can work together to share the world's abundance. When the veil is lifted, white progressive people will make room for the necessary demonstrations of black rage as black people work out the pus in the wounds that were inflicted upon us. When the veil is lifted, white shame and guilt can be released. When the veil is lifted, the spirit of freedom will dance joyfully among different cultures and communities uniting them in the celebration of diversity. I dropped by First Baptist Church today to invite you to join me in lifting the veil. For when the veil is lifted, you and you you, and you, and you, and I, and we will be on our way to genuine abiding reconciliation. Amen.